Good morning. Maybe let me invite you guys to find your way to a seat. We're going to begin. I have just a couple of quick announcements to start with. First is this coming Saturday is men's breakfast. Um, if you would like to be a part of that, join us at McKenzie's Barbecue at 8 a.m. on Saturday. Also on Saturday is the women's tea. Um, if you have not already gotten signed up for that, um, you you can go and speak um, with Debbie Call. Um, to talk to her about participation with that. Um, both of those things are this coming Saturday. Um, also, our kids' camp is on the schedule, and registrations are open for it. So if you've got kiddos five to uh, ages 5 to 11, you can sign them up for kids' camp on Church Center. If you are interested in volunteering for that, you can sign up through the same registration as a volunteer. Also, this next Sunday, Adam's going to host a volunteer informational meeting just after the church, and I'll remind you again next Sunday about that. This weekend was our Love Does event. And on Friday, we were able to help um, some folks around our community, um, some of them within our church. Um, and then on Saturday, we were able to help some of our local mission partners. So thank you all for helping with that. I know many of you were a part of that. Thank you. Um, and today, um, we're going to have a, a time of celebration. So if you signed up to be a part of that celebration, remember to hang around after church um, to be a part of that. I don't think I have anything else. So let's stand together.
there's love for us How vast beyond all measure That he should give his only son To make a wretch his treasure How great the pain of searing loves The father turns his face away which mother's chosen one bring many sons to thank you for the life that you gave for us. We thank you that through him we can come to you. We thank you that because of him we can become your children. Father, we ask this morning that you would draw us close, make us like Jesus, teach us by the truth of your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys can have a seat, and if you are one of our kiddos K through 5, you can be dismissed to Sunshine Kids Club. Thank you, Mary. <laughs> Jesus is Lord of the second chances. 
he delights in do-overs. In fact, he's elated when we take a mulligan, if you will. Many years ago, I was playing golf with some friends that took golf much more seriously than I did. And they could afford to. Half of them had played in college. And uh, I learned about mulligans from them. I, I learned about mulligans from them. And a mulligan, if you're not aware, is a second chance when the first chance went wrong. So I'm on the first tee, and I pull out my driver, and I, of course, lift my head, and I mishit the ball. I shank it completely out of bounds. And as I'm leaning over to try and find my tee and pick it up, pick up what's left of it, I hear these guys saying, hit another. And I'm like, really? Hit another? Sure, hit another. You don't need to play out of that guy's backyard. And... Uh, <laughs> We won't put it on the scorecard. We'll pretend it never happened. You just take a mulligan. And so I hit another one. And that one stayed in bounds. And I got to play it. And uh, thanks to them, I got a mulligan on nearly every hole. <laughs> Made my game much more fun and allowed them to finish in a decent time. It was a great time, and I learned that playing golf with mulligans is fun and freeing, and of course, it's only in friendly games like that. You can't do that in tournaments and all that. In fact, in all the King's Horses, we had to buy some mulligans, and we were limited to each nine, and uh, that was great. It allowed them to make some more money as well. But uh, that's what a, a mulligan is, and, and wouldn't it be great if we could take mulligans in life, you know? You get a speeding ticket, then you say to the policeman, hey, I'm going to tear this up. I'm going to take a mulligan. And he says, right on. That's okay. <laughs> and uh, your bank account's overdrawn, and you let them know that you're going to take a mulligan on this one. And they said, no problem. Or you get into an argument with a good friend. Or you do horribly on a test. All the things you can think of in life. Wouldn't it be great just to have a do-over on everything we do in life. That would just be awesome as far as I'm concerned. Excuse me. Really dry this morning. You know, forget to send in your taxes and uh, take a do-over. Well, in some ways, we get a spiritual do-over with Jesus when we sin, when we break his rules, when we are disobedient whether by commission or omission. And we find that in 1 John 1, 9, right? You're familiar with that. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous or just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, we still face the consequences of our sin, but we're not held accountable for those sins anymore. And, and Jesus forgives us and he restores us to full fellowship with him. We're able to commune with him and experience his love and grace and joy in greater ways. That's something that we need to practice on a daily basis. But the question I have for us is, why don't we confess our sins more often? Why don't we live by the truth of these words in 
1 John chapter 1. Because life is much more freeing and fun when we're cleansed of all unrighteousness, when we're in full communion with our Savior. Well, our sermon series is titled, Hello, My Name is Jesus. And and in the process of, of looking at various passages throughout the Gospels, we are seeking a greater understanding of who he is. Because we believe that the more that we know about Jesus and understand about him, the more that we will love him. And the more deeply that we love him, the more completely we will obey him and be drawn to worship him. So that's where we're going with this overall sermon series. And today we're going to get a chance to look at Jesus' attitude towards sinners. That's you and me. And this passage, the gospel passage that we're going to look at from the gospel of John is not dealing with a believer, but the message today is toward believers. That's what 1 John 1, 9 is written to. Those who have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you have placed your faith in Christ. You believe that he died on the cross for your sins, was buried and rose again, victorious over sin and death. And he has entered your life to lead you. And so we're going to look at John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. And we need to ask the question, do we really believe that God, that Jesus is the Lord of the second chance, that he is the God of the do-overs? Do we honestly think that he will forgive and restore without recrimination. Most of us struggle in that regard. John Ortberg writes this, if there is one way that human beings consistently underestimate God's love, it is perhaps in his loving longing to forgive. I like that. Consistently underestimate God's love is perhaps in his loving longing to forgive. Let's take a a look at Jesus offering mercy instead of judgment in John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. And what we're going to see is a woman who received mercy instead of judgment. A woman who received the grace of Jesus Christ. This story begins with Jesus in Jerusalem, And it's early morning, and he's in the temple, and and like rabbis do, he gathers his students around. He's going to be teaching on the law. And this is what we read in, actually going back to 753, there's a phrase there, everyone went to his home, and then verses 1 and 2 of chapter 8. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again into the temple. And the people were coming to him, and he sat down and began to teach him. That's how the, the rabbis, the teachers, would teach. They would sit down, people would gather around, and they would expound the law. It was normal, and that happened in the outer courts of the temple. It was a daily affair, many rabbis. And it also gave the opportunity for opponents to come by and to challenge you on your understanding or your interpretation of Scripture. He gave opportunity to win more people to understanding of Scripture. So here's what happens. These scribes and Pharisees, his opponents, the opponents of Jesus, and and this has been going on throughout his ministry, they come up to him and they bring a woman 
that is caught in adultery. We read this in verses 3 and 4. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. So here's somebody who's caught in the act of adultery. And if you go back to Leviticus 20, Deuteronomy 22, you see that there are penalties for that. You see that there are ways that that has to happen. That there have to be two witnesses to see this actually happen. And of course, the, the right way to handle it, according to the Old Testament, is that you intervene and try to prevent them from sinning. But that didn't happen here, and you'll see why in, in just a moment here. The scribes and the Pharisees were the ones who were known for attempting to keep the law. They were the ones that studied the law. And so the scribes were essentially lawyers and theologians and teachers and, and judges. They just held themselves up because of the law. And most of the Pharisees were scribes as well. Not all of them were. But they were the ones that tried to teach. And they tried to burden everybody down with all these rules about how to please God. Well, the rules really were structures and organization that they put into place to elevate their power and to top off their pride. Well, they're going to make a legal claim about this woman, and it's obvious from the start that she is just a disposable prop to them. They do not care about this woman. These are some of the religious leaders, and they don't care about her, but they're going to bring her in because they want to, prep, to uh, trap Jesus. And there's something terribly wrong with that picture, isn't it? Like women throughout the centuries, she is being held to a higher societal and religious standard than the men. We ask, where is the man? Because adultery doesn't happen in isolation. So we don't know if these Pharisees and scribes intent on trapping Jesus just winked at his indiscretion or if he was part of the act of catching her. But he's not around. And that's the first thing that's wrong. Well, no, the first thing is just the hearts of the scribes and Pharisees. The second thing is he's not there. The woman is viewed strictly by her actions as a pawn to fulfill the Pharisees' dream in bringing down Jesus. Jesus is going to dignify her. He's going to look her in the eye. He's going to talk to her because of her design in the image of God. He knows that the Pharisees are using her to get to him. Pharisees could have done this in private with the man, but they didn't take that approach. They're simply here to shame her in order to put Jesus on the horns of a dilemma. This is what we read in verses 5 and 6. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Again, they leave off the man. What then do you say? They were saying this, testing him so that they might have grounds for accusing him. Now, the law says that a single woman who's betrothed, who's engaged, would be stoned. She and her paramour, she and, and the man would both be taken outside the city and stoned to death. The law also says that a married woman who commits adultery, she and her lover would be strangled. So for that reason, we take this to be an engaged woman that has been trapped or caught in adultery. 
The trap is set for Jesus. If he does not follow the law, then they can accuse him of helping people violate the law, of, of teaching people it's okay to disregard God's law. If he doesn't follow the law, he could be dismissed as lawless and even taken to court. But if he upholds the law of Moses, then he loses his reputation as a friend of sinners, right? And he could be in trouble with the Roman prefect because only the Roman prefect had the power and authority to say that someone could be executed. And so if he brought this about without consulting the Roman authorities, he could be in trouble with the Romans. So the Pharisees and the scribes think they have, again, the perfect trap for Jesus. They are only interested in destroying him, regaining some of his popularity that he's taken from them, and finding a way to be done with him forever. So the tension rises, and our heart goes out to the woman. She did wrong. However, she's standing in the center of the court, the crowd, being accused by the Pharisees and awaiting the remarks of a rabbi. And she has every reason to believe that that rabbi would uphold the law, that he would condemn her to death. Jesus is faced with that dilemma. How do we reconcile justice and mercy? Well, he took his time, which infuriated the Pharisees, even drew in the sand. We don't know what he drew, but he persisted. They persisted in asking him the same question, and finally Jesus answered them. We see this in verses 6 through 8. But Jesus stooped down, and with his finger he wrote on the ground. There's been some great conjecture about what that could be, but we have no clue. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up. And he said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Jesus has a decision here. And he basically says, if you are sinless, not sinless perfection, but sinless in this category of adultery. And of course, in, in his teaching, that carries on to lust and fantasy of the mind. If you are sinless in this category, then you be the first one to throw the stone. You bring the execution to bear upon this woman. He wrote some more in the sand, giving the Pharisees time to consider his words, to be convicted by their consciences to evaluate themselves. They had so many things to consider here. Their own heart in trying to get rid of him, their hypocrisy in their moral standards, their treatment of this woman and the double standard for her. There, there are so many things that they can be convicted of. And so Jesus gives them time. He stoops down and, and begins to write or draw in the sand again. And what we discover is the ones who came to shame the woman and trap Jesus are shamed themselves. Jesus has passed judgment on the judges. And we see that in verse 9. 
when they heard Jesus' decision, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone, and the woman, where she was in the center of the court. Crowds still there, Pharisees and scribes now have drifted off. Maybe the older ones were more sensitive to Jesus' teaching or the condition of their own hearts. They left first, but everyone did leave. And the woman is still there. She's still in a vulnerable position. Nothing's been said about her sin. Again, she has no clue how the rabbi is going to treat her. So we get that answer in verses 10 and 11. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, which is a very respectful greeting of the day, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She says, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go from now on, sin no more. There are no witnesses, no prosecutors left, so there can be no trial. And then Jesus adds, I do not condemn you. She is free. Can you imagine the relief and the joy that filled her soul? when she is told she is not condemned for this sin. Not only is she not going to be killed for it, but she has essentially been forgiven. She's been given a mulligan here by Jesus. And of course, we wonder what kind of joy did it bring Jesus? His words don't imply innocence, he doesn't take sin lightly. We see that throughout Scripture. But he does offer life anew for the sinner. The gracious, forgiving words of Jesus point us in two directions here. The first one is they, they remind us of the words that Jesus spoke to Nicodemus back in chapter 3 in his nighttime talk with this other Pharisee. And it, he told him that I did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save it. He is the judge. There will be a day of judgment, but his earthly ministry was one of seeking and saving the lost. He came to save those who were lost. And so that comes to mind. The other thing it does is it prompts us to recall accounts like Mark chapter 2 with the paralytic, where we recognize the sovereignty of Jesus and his right to forgive sin. That he, just like the Father himself, can forgive sin. And so as we see this taking place before the crowd, we realize that that's what's going on biblically, theologically. And those are important truths. But there's still an aspect of it, at least for me, that kind of screams out, where's the justice? Yes, she sinned, and yes, he doesn't condemn her. And I know that's the great Sunday school answer. We know about grace and mercy, right? But there's still this issue. Again, if we're going to think biblically and theologically, Where's the justice in all of this? She got off scot-free. A God of love wants to forgive sinners, but a God of holiness must be just 
He must punish sin and uphold his righteous law. There are no mulligans for evil. So where's the justice? Well, the answer is Jesus Christ himself. The Bible says a place where God's unswerving commitment to justice and God's undying love for sinners, where those two meet is at the cross. Jesus went to the cross that he might be just and justifier. The cross is the declaration of God's hatred of sin and all the danger that sin does. The cross is the declaration of God's love and his desire to redeem sinners. When Jesus suffered the wrath of God on the cross for the sins of the world, he fully met the demands of God's law. And he also fully expressed the love of God's heart. For Jesus to forgive the woman meant that he had to one day die for her sins because forgiveness is free, but it does not come cheap. God can be both just and justifier because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the woman leaves the scene delighted. Relief doesn't even begin to capture the difference between mercy and justice as it's applied to her. She's given a mulligan by Jesus and, and life becomes freeing and fun. And I'm sure that her life became one of devotion to him, out of love, out of sheer gratitude for his treatment of her. We're not told about her becoming a follower or a disciple. That's my conjecture. Jesus revealed himself as one who delights in forgiveness, bringing forgiveness, comfort, and healing to our brokenness. And we know that we can go to Jesus for grace and mercy to help in time of need. We can go when, he, when we sin as the Lord of the second chance. He loves to forgive us. Grace and mercy are who he is. Forgiveness is what he does. Why are we so slow to confess our sins and receive his forgiveness, cleansed of unrighteousness? It's like we don't want to take our mulligans. As I look at the lives of many Christians today, even my own, I see two barriers that get in the way of living in delightful fellowship with our Lord. The first one is that we, forget to, we tend to forget what God has done on our behalf the gravity and the reality of our sin and, and being forgiven by his grace and mercy. The second one is that we fail to return to the Lord for forgiveness. This spiritual mulligan, which is a little bit casual way of looking at 1 John 1, 9, is one that we often do not use. And that's to our detriment. That is, that produces a lack of joy in our own lives. So let's look at the first barrier, enjoying great fellowship with Jesus. The barrier is forgetting what God has done on our behalf through Jesus. Christ's forgiveness in each of our lives diminishes as we lose touch with the depth of our own sinfulness. When we no longer see ourselves in the drama of this woman, when we feel that we are free from accusation and judgment, we lose sight of God's grace. Jesus is not simply committed to the requirements of the law, but to the care and transformation of the woman before him, as well as every person who brings confession of sin to him. 
keeping God's grace before us reminds us of the reality and the gravity of our own sin. The drama of this woman and Jesus takes on a new and powerful light when I become the woman and reflect on the seriousness of my sin, standing accused in the center of the crowd. Through this new vision, I gain a new glimpse of Jesus' grace and mercy. And reflecting on passages like Romans 5 are healthy for us to remember vividly our condition before Christ. Reflecting on Jesus and his work on the cross keeps us mindful of his grace and compels us to love him and to worship him more. That's the first barrier, forgetting what God has done. The second barrier is enjoy, to enjoying great fellowship with Jesus is that we fail to return to the Lord for forgiveness of sins on a daily basis. We're saved by grace through faith, but many of us quit talking to God about our sin at that point. If we wish to find help from Jesus, then we've got to truly acknowledge our condition before him. In fact, that's essentially the biblical definition of confession. It literally means to agree with God. We agree with God about our sin, about evil, about our sin being against him. We confess it. We give it to him. We ask forgiveness. But too many Christians at this point set up their own personal barriers to fellowship with Jesus. And I want to list, I don't know, three or four here that, that uh, I've thought of on my own, in my own walk with Jesus, and some I've heard in my office helping our church family walk with Jesus. Some followers of Jesus take a reverse approach to confession. They think and understand that it's just too easy to confess sin and be forgiven. That we can do what we want and then take it to Jesus and be forgiven. And that's an abuse of grace. So they're not going to confess that sin. They're just going to own it. Well, that's like saying, I'm not going to eat food because it'll make me healthy. It'll keep me alive. We don't want to be those people. We don't want to twist our reasoning. Others get so deflated by sin. Maybe you can identify with that, that they give up going to Jesus for grace and mercy. They think less of themselves instead of thinking more about his grace and his mercy on their behalf. Uh, others only confess the sins that they know they're not going to commit again. Because, you know, that's just habitual. It's just part of who I am. And they consider it their identity. And that's wrong because Jesus' grace covers every sin and every sin repeatedly. Still others have the wrong view of Christ. And when we fall into this category, then we begin to view him as the wrong view of who he is. We think that Christ is disappointed with us. We think that he is ashamed of us. We think that he would like to wring our necks. We think he's just too tired of forgiving us for that sin. And so some of us recuse ourselves from talking to Jesus about our sins. Some of us do this long enough that we just sometimes quit talking to Jesus in prayer at all, except when we need things desperately. And so I would challenge you to think about barriers that you might have drifted into over the years 
things that you might do that, that, that don't keep confession of sin fresh and don't continually restore you to full fellowship with Jesus Christ. All of these views are, of Christ are, are wrong. He's the Lord of the second chance. He is our Jesus who longs to forgive. So perhaps it would help us to reorient our thoughts about him by asking the question, what brings Jesus joy? What is happiness for Jesus? Dane Ortland asked this question in his little book, Gentle and Lowly. He says that Christ rejoices when his disciples forsake all to follow him. And he rejoices when his disciples are faithful in little so that they can be faithful over much. And we know by default that Jesus is always happy and joyful when we obey, when we listen to him, when we hear and we heed. But what else is there that might bring joy to Jesus? Ortland submits this, what if his very heart and joy is engaged in a new way in our foibles and failures? Our foibles and failures, our sin. Have you ever thought about that? I think of three principles that might help us draw into freeing and fun life through a better understanding of Jesus. First one is this, that grace and mercy are limitless attributes of Jesus. Limitless attributes. We see that Jesus' own joy and happiness are increased and enlarged when he shows grace and mercy in pardoning, in comforting, in healing our brokenness. That's the point. Jesus has a limitless supply of grace and mercy. We can continually re return to him. What about this issue of Jesus taking joy? Now, we know that he is fully God and fully man. And as truly God, he is completely full. He's eternal. He's immortal. He is unchangeable. He needs nothing, right? But we also know that he is fully man. And that means that his joy can be increased. And his joy is increased when he's able to give out of his limitless supply of grace and mercy. In the same way that a mother gets more joy and comfort in seeing her chi child healed, Jesus gets more joy and comfort than we do when it comes to him for grace and mercy. It is who he is. It is what he does. And when we come to Christ for grace and forgiveness, we're going with the flow of his deepest desires. If you're in rebellion, your heart is hardening and you are running away from joy that Jesus has for you. You need to repent and surrender to Jesus. The second principle is that Jesus not only has a limitless supply of grace and mercy, but he revealed his heart through his actions on the cross. His selfless sacrifice as a sinless substitute reveals his joy to us. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 12 said that he endured the cross for the joy to come. What is that joy? What is waiting for Jesus on the other side of the cross? Well, the joy is seeing his people forgiven, seeing them cleansed, the anticipation of being declared righteous and took Jesus to the cross through death, burial, and resurrection with great joy. When we come to him 
today for forgiveness. We're taking hold of one of Jesus' greatest joys and desires, and that is to offer grace and mercy. These truths are revealed in other scriptures. We've looked at Luke 15 in this series. At the celebration that takes place in heaven when a sinner repents, there is joy untold. In John 15, a few chapters later, Jesus talks about the joy that he shares with his followers, that he wants us, as we abide in his love, as we respond in loving obedience, to share in his joy and to know that in greater abundance. Scripture talks about the joy of Jesus Christ. That's the second principle, his actions through the cross. And then I think the third principle is the fact that we are his body. Is one more reason that Jesus delights in seeing us come to him for forgiveness, comfort, and healing in our brokenness. We're told in Paul's epistles that we make up the body of Christ, right? He is the head. It's very clear in Ephesians 1 and in Ephesians 5. And in Ephesians 5, that great passage we call the, the marriage passage, he reminds us that he is head of the body and he tells us what he does with the body of Christ, meaning all of us. First of all, he says we are members of his body. And then he tells us that he cherishes and he nourishes us. He nurtures us. He loves us. And so when Jesus takes care of us, when he delivers grace and mercy, his own body is getting healing. When our joy rises and falls, his joy rises and falls. Our joy can only rise by turning to Jesus Christ, confessing our sin and enjoying his grace and mercy. I honestly believe that we marginalize ourselves when we come up with reasons not to confess our sin, when we hold back from going to Christ with our sin, we lose out on the joy of being cleansed to a freeing and fun life. He loses out on the joy of forgiving. So I said in the introduction that a mulligan on the golf course makes life fun and freeing, unless you're a really great golfer. I would have been a fool not to take advantage of mulligans on every hole. And I enjoyed the grace and the mercy of my playing partners and their laughter at my shots. I think that not, be, not confessing our sin because we have a wrong view of Jesus because we don't realize how much joy it brings him is the same as not taking mulligans. It's the same as trudging into people's backyards looking for a golf ball that's under somebody's hedge somewhere. It's like trying to hit off of roots in the woods with your golf club. We are a people that too often struggle because we don't take advantage of confessing our sin to Jesus Christ. Too often we do that because we, realize, we don't realize the depth of Jesus' joy and the happiness that it brings to him. So I would challenge you this week to think of Jesus as the Lord of the second chances. N not just that he turns your life around and sets you on the right course, but he is with you day by day. Confess your sin to him. And I will follow that path as well. Let's pray. 
Lord Jesus, thank you for your life given to us. We thank you for the fact that you've made us new creatures in Christ. And, and despite the difficulties of living in a fallen world and, and following our fleshly desires and, and being immersed in the world system, that you are there for us and that you offer grace and mercy, that you forgive us and you restore us to full fellowship, that we might fully experience your love and your joy and your grace and your peace. Thank you that we can call on you at all times and any time. And we pray that you would help us to be more direct in talking about our sin with you, that we might experience the joy of being forgiven anew and being cleansed of all unrighteousness, and that you might experience joy because that's who you are and that's what you do. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Would you stand with me?
us today. Have a great week.